I was just listening to Show Up Queen and like the song is so good but it starts off with Jen's verse and I hate Jen's verse the most. You know how like the Madonna musical starts with Jen? But Jen was good there. This one like her verse like sucks. True. I wonder why she went I wonder why she went more rap or like talking talk singing instead of actually singing. (laughs) I know but like it's it's I don't mind her tune. I just hate her lyrics so much. Peppy, peppy, and peppy. I have to get through that pain before getting to the good parts. So, I mean, her lyrics that. are really me, myself, and I. Hello. Welcome to Hidden Among Us. I'm your host, Chris. And this is Honda. And welcome to episode 54. Honda, um, have you been watching the Olympics? No. Really? No, I'm serious. <laughs> I don't know. I, can, I feel like I cannot watch it and enjoy it. Why not? I don't know. Because it's like, like the pandemic just... and then how Japan's handling it. Like I can't enjoy it. Okay, well, but well, I've been watching the Olympics. <laughs> the most unsportiest person is watching the Olympics. Okay, I don't know. Okay, like remember how Shen like texted us uh, saying that like she got emotional watching like the opening ceremony or whatever. Like I experienced the same thing because it's like it's it's just evidence. <laughs> Of like the human spirit, you know, like all these athletes who put so much like hard work and effort, like they dedicate their lives to a particular sport. And then the Olympics is when they can like show off all these efforts. And I don't know, something about that just really gets me. And like watching the Olympics is just, it's so fulfilling. I mean, I would feel that way if it wasn't the pit, uh, like, if there wasn't a pandemic right now. I mean, true, but I feel like the Olympics, there's something about it that offers like a sense of normalcy. I don't know how to explain it. I don't know. I mean, back in when I was in secondary school, um, during the Olympics, like we'd have this, te- like the PE teachers would set up like a projector and a screen and then we'll just watch it during our breaks like recess, we just see like Olympic events happening. And I don't know, watching the Olympics sort of reminded me of that. Like back to a time when things were like fine. <laughs> didn't have to deal with the pandemic. Yeah. And I don't know. The Olympics is just exciting. It is. Like today, my family and I, we were watching athletics. So watching the high jump event. Mm. And um, okay, by the way, men's high jump was so cool because they were all clearing every height like literally every height so scary how they land because like they land on their high back the the neck area I'm just like uh, (laughs) watching it is very scary oh my god and they roll backwards Uh, right yes 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 and some of them they roll backwards so much they actually do like a somersault and I'm just Mm -hmm. like holy shit but anyway so I was watching the men's finals for the high jump event and they were all clearing it like every single bar height 
they were clearing it. So you were like, who's going to win this event? Because everyone is just doing it. And eventually, um, the people who got tied, I mean, who got tied, the, the gold medal the gold medal winners, it was actually tied between Qatar and Italy. Interesting. Yeah, and it was so interesting. Also, um, the Italian guy who won, he kind of looks like JVN, like Jonathan Van Ness. <laughs> I can't imagine. And like, he appeared on screen, I was like, Jonathan Van Ness. <laughs> yeah, but this guy who won, right, apparently the previous Olympics, he injured himself to the point where could have almost ended his career. Mm. Yeah, like his injury was really, really bad. And um, so he told himself that he was going to make a comeback and he was going to do his best for the Tokyo Olympics. And he freaking got gold. And the thing is, right, um, at the end, I can't remember when, but he actually brought out the cast he wore <laughs> when he was injured. And it, it says like Tokyo 2021. And after he won... Because it was a tie. So he and the other guy who got the same points, they basically had to discuss and agree that they both would get the gold medal. If not, they would have to keep doing the event until like somebody jumped a higher bar. Mm. But thing is, like, he was just rolling on the floor crying. Like he was just crying out of sheer happiness because he went through so much and he finally won this event. Mm-hmm. He got gold for his country. And like Watching that is just, you're like amazed at how dedicated people can be and how passionate they are about what they do. I'm not mm. a sports person. I cannot even imagine. But it's just, you just watch that. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's just evidence of like the human spirit and what like people can do. And at the same time, like we watched... um one of the athletic events, I think one of the women's hurdles, and this girl, like, she tripped or something, and she fell on the hurdle or whatever, and, like, you could see in the replay the moment she knew that it was the end for her, Mm. like, she was not going to win the thing, and, like, that got me, man. I was, like, ready to cry. That was just so heartbreaking. Because you dedicate so many years to this one event this one day mm-hmm. and then like it something goes wrong and you don't get the gold for your country and I'm just man I sound so passionate about the Olympics yep. <laughs> I'm not even a sports person yeah but the Olympics just gets me oh my god it just gets me so at the same time like back in Singapore I think most of our athletes have come home and um, I think the sailing made it is made it to the finals, and I'm mm. not sure if that ended yet. But that's the only last ones that. Yeah, the last okay. few athletes. I'm not sure about sailing. No, but Me the too. thing is, right? Um, our athletes did really well. I was watching the badminton men's badminton and like I can't remember the name of the player but the, the Singapore guy like he was up against like world number seven and he was doing so well like the scores were so close mm. yeah and I don't know I feel like on one hand it's the pressure of 
you've worked so hard for so many years, like it needs to pay off in the event, right? But the other one is also to bring glory to your country. And I feel like Singaporeans are just, some Singaporeans, I wouldn't say all of them, are just like assholes to these athletes, particularly Joseph Schooling. I know. It's, it's, it's like, you know, that mentality of how if you don't get high scores, it's your your achievements are nothing, that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and it's very like, shitty. It's so annoying because like the media, like the media's <laughs> God, I can't even express to you how pissed off as I, I was like reading some of the Straits Times' like tweets about it. Like apparently it's objective journalism, but like, are you kidding me? Like saying things like, oh, like it's the end for him or it's like, his dreams are dashed or whatever. I'm like, why? Just say that he didn't make it past the event. Just say it. Just mm-hmm. say he didn't qualify for the next round and then leave it. There's no point in being like he, his dreams of getting goals are dashed or whatever, whatever. I mean, are you kidding me? He had... Okay, listen. Okay, he got gold the first time and it doesn't mean he he's a one-hit wonder. Like... There were some comments under like the Straits Times Twitter, like the the tweet about him, right? And people were saying that he was just like a one hit a wonder. He can only do it once, like of like as if they know him personally. Like, listen, this guy had to also train during a pandemic. In Singapore. In Singapore. Wait, was he in Singapore? Yeah, he's in no, Singapore. He, he's now in Singapore. I know he trained in the US as well. Yeah, but that was that was when he was at his, like, you know, at his best. Mm. It was because he was able to, like, be in so many competitions. Yeah, but listen, like, a whole pandemic happened. On top of that, like, yeah, I feel... All I feel the restrictions, that, they can't train as per normal. There's, they can't they can't, train as per normal. they can't join competitions to, you know, train them, to, like, get them ready. Essentially. And it's not just that. I feel like, why do we have to put so much pressure on his shoulders or like the shoulders for athletes? Is it not enough to just support them? I mean, like other, I feel like, I feel like when I see from like other countries, like no other country, not, I wouldn't say no other country, but other countries won't shit on the athletes for not getting like top, like for not getting exactly. bronze and above. <laughs> no one is making like shitty Facebook posts. No one is accusing athletes of using of wasting taxpayer money like like Joseph Schooling's like, uncle had to yeah, come forward and I be saw. like he had to pay the for training and tickets and everything the parents sacrifice so much yeah <laughs> like listen don't you think he's already devastated that he mm-hmm. you know didn't qualify for the next round I mean what, these athletes to- they are their biggest critics you know yeah, essentially. And what we can do as like an entire nation is to still stand behind their backs. And the thing is, right, now Singapore has this ad like on TV that's like, oh, you know, we have to support our athletes. And I was like, where were y'all when people were throwing abuse at Joseph Schooling? <laughs> and, and it's particularly him, you know, because I don't see it for any other athletes. Is it because he won gold the other time? Like, mm. it's so unfair to him. I and mean, it's not like... <laughs> It's not like we're fostering any kind of like sports passion in Singapore in the first place. It's, an, it's no only a shit about swimming oh, until he only, won gold. Oh, I know, only for Olympics, and then you're like, oh, sports. But then 
after other than that, you know, we'll be we'll be shitting on our soccer team, we'll be shitting on everything. <laughs> Precisely. And it's and like, there's no resources given to them at all, no yeah. support. Tell me how much funding we're giving our athletes. Tell me. So like all these people throwing unwarranted abuse at our athletes, I'm just like, you know what? A message to all of you. Are you professionals? <laughs> Have you studied the sport? Do you know anything? If the answer to any of those questions is no, how about you keep quiet and just support athletes? I want to see like, you swim. <laughs> yeah, I want to... You know what? I want to see you swim. You're, you're right, Honda. You know what? We want to see you swim. We <laughs> Especially butterfly. You know how swim. butterflies are so hard? Like, I tried... When I was a kid, I was like, how the hell do they do this? I'm I like, know your I body like... goes through so... Listen... How about you go through the same diet and exercise regimen Joseph Schooling and all our athletes have had to go through in order to get to this point? How about you do that? Are you able to eat chicken breast every single day with nothing else? Can you give up on your Starbucks drink? No. These people have to go through so much. And like the reward they get in the end is like a whole bunch of people throwing abuse at them online. It's even worse for like the table tennis players because yeah, you know, they're not born in Singapore, but they are Singaporean. Oh, don't you even and, get me oh started God, the on comments the... are so <laughs> so annoying. It gets me so angry all the time. And it's always for the table tennis players. And they be like, time to import another one from China. I'm just like, the fuck? Or some comments will be like, is she a naturalized citizen? I'm just like, the fuck? Oh, she's, God. she's carrying the same flag as you. Can you just shut up <laughs> and support? Like, yeah, because uh, no offense in Singapore, I mean, if any Singaporean Chinese person wants to argue with us on this, like you can go ahead. But in Singapore, there is definitely a divide between what we consider a Singaporean Chinese and mm-hmm. a Chinese person from mainland China, and there's a lot of racism and internalized racism because of it, because that that there is this superiority complex that we have because we are like what you know English or West like a bit more Western educated that kind of thing, whereas like people from mainland China are viewed to be inferior, and backwards and whatnot. Listen, we all use the same technology, <laughs> you know. So I, I don't know. It's it's a complex thing, but you know what. Enjoy the Olympics while you can. It's gonna end soon. <laughs> yeah, I know. There are certain um like sexist things that happen. Like um, apparently I can't remember the country. A country's like female volleyball team got fined because they refused to wear bikinis. And apparently, oh, it's the beach volleyball. Oh, beach volleyball. Okay, but it's like written in the rules that they have to. Why? Is that, yeah, I know. Sometimes like the women's uh athletes outfits look so uncomfortable yeah so I would rather wear the men's one <laughs> um ju- the German gymnastics team wore leotards to sort of take a stand against the sexualization of female gymnasts which I thought was very interesting yeah I mean the men's don't wear that <laughs> listen <laughs> we need to put men in bikinis <laughs> <laughs> Olympic committee Why is it not written down Why are men not Mandated to wear bikinis hmm? Also um, The last 
thing I would like to say before moving on to our story is that the Japanese volleyball team. Oh my god, very good looking, and um, Honda is finally getting me to watch Haikyuu, so we're most likely going to watch it tomorrow. No, like seriously, if you watch Haikyuu, you'll be more. Not yeah, actually you'll be more knowledgeable of what's going on and you really appreciate the movements they're doing. Cause I was like seeing a highlight reel of one of their matches. And I'm just like, oh my god, that's one of the moves I've seen in the anime. So it's okay, like but listen, I'm not watching it to appreciate the sport. I'm watching it because <laughs> they are drag <laughs> I'm excited for this one. <laughs> oh no. You always say that about your story. I know, but it's kind of long. Also, I just realized today's a double episode and we just spent like 20 minutes talking about the Olympics. You were so passionate about it. <laughs> I'm so passionate about it. Okay, anyway. So today's story is about Rodney Alcala, aka the dating game killer. Okay. Have you not heard about him before? No, I don't think oh. so. The name doesn't ring a bell. Okay, but that's the the name, the pseudonym. No, doesn't ring a bell. Oh, okay. Well, this is interesting because um, the dating game killer is one of the more well known killers in the US. Hmm. Okay. Well, <laughs> I'll just jump right into it because it's pretty interesting. It's um, the timeline is a bit confusing, but I try my best to make it as concise and linear as possible okay so on september 13th 1978 viewers in the united states tuned into abc to catch the dating game a television show where a designated bachelorette will ask three bachelors questions until time ran out after which she could pick a bachelor to go out on a date with you know how on All Stars, there's the Snatch Game of Love? Uh-huh. Yeah, it's the exact same concept. Basically, one person, oh. the best. But do you get to see them? No, you don't get to see them. Oh, that's the exact same. Okay. Yeah, so I think they cannot ask questions about how they look like, their name, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really anonymous. So it's based on questions. So, um, interestingly, there were several famous contestants that have been on the show before. So, Farrah Fawcett was on the show. Steve Martin was on the show. Arnold Schwarzenegger was on the show. <laughs> and so was John Britta. And this was... They were on the show before they became famous. Okay. Yeah. So, September 13th, um, the bachelorette on the show, her name was Cheryl Bradshaw. So Cheryl was a drama teacher and to Bachelor number one, she asks, what time is the best time? Okay, so this is the ensuing conversation. He answers, the best time is at night, night time. Mm-hmm. So she asks, why do you say that? Because that's the only time there is. The only time? What's wrong with the morning, afternoon? And then he says, well, they're okay, but nighttime is when it really gets good. <laughs> okay. Such a weird response. Okay. So she asks him another question. So this is later on. She, she asks him a bunch of questions like in between, but like this is later on. Okay. So she asks, question number one, I am serving you for dinner. 
what are you called and what do you look like? And then he says, I'm called the banana and I look really good. <laughs> so she says, can you be a little more descriptive? What do you think his response is, Honda? It's corny. <laughs> it's corny. Corny? Like, like his response is kind of corny. You can peel me? Yeah, he says, peel me. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I can't believe I caught it. <laughs> oh no. Oh my god. You can actually find a clip of this segment online. Like, you just search um, the dating game killer. And like, the clip, <laughs> oh my god, it was so funny. He was just like, peel me and everyone starts laughing and I'm like okay so Bachelor number one comes across as charming and funny and he makes Cheryl laugh as well as the audience though I cannot 100% tell you that there was an audience there or if it was like a laugh track mm-hmm. but people were laughing um, Bachelor number one was also described as a successful photographer who got his start when his father found him in the darkroom at the age of 13 fully developed also this edition of saying fully developed i don't know what that means like was he developed as a 13 year old or was he developing photos but anyway between takes you might find him skydiving or motorcycling so in the end bachelor number one's humor and banana jokes wins cheryl bradshaw over and she chooses him so he wins the show overall (sighs) i mean that day's episode he wins it Mm-hmm. Sebastian number one would turn out to be Rodney L. Keller and at the time of his appearance on the show he had already been convicted of sexually assaulting an 8 and 13 year old girl Gross. and beyond those past offences Rodney L. Keller was also linked to the murders of five other women <sighs> so Rodney L. Keller born Rodrigo Jacques Alcala Bucor <laughs> was born on August 23, 1943 in San Antonio, Texas. His parents, Raul Alcala Bucor and Ana Maria Gutierrez, were Mexican-American. Mm-hmm. Eventually, in 1951, when Alcala was eight years old, his parents uprooted and moved to Mexico. But unfortunately, three years later, Alcala's father would abandon their family. Then in 1954, Alcala's mother moved back, moved them to suburban LA with his two sisters and him. When Alcala was 17, he joined the US Army and served as a clerk. He eventually had a nervous breakdown three years after joining the Army. When he had his nervous breakdown, he went AWOL and hitchhiked from Fort Bragg to his mother's house. He was eventually diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder and discharged from the military. So, Okay, get this. After leaving the army, he graduated from the UCLA School of Fine Arts and later studied film under Roman Polanski at New York University. Nice. Uh, I mean, Roman Polanski is a whole other bag of worms. I just... We, we have to do, like, an episode just on Roman Polanski because, I mean, um, have you watched the film Portrait of the Lady on Fire? 
Hmm. Okay, so um, there's this video from 2020, and I think this is this if this award ceremony is the equivalent of the Oscars, but for France. Okay. And then what happened was one of the actresses, her name is Adele Adele Hainel. I'm not sure how to pronounce her name, but she uh, Roman Polanski essentially he wins and he wins an award for best director of some film, and she gets up and she walks out of the ceremony. She walks out and she like she yells "Bravo, pedophilia!" Oh wow! Yeah, because he was um I think he. He sexually assaulted a minor and he ran away to another country to evade capture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he was never formally sort of charged with the offense. But because he lived in exile, he could also sort of still direct films. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's just such a lucrative... I mean, it's just messed up. The fact that he evaded capture for freaking assaulting a child and he can still make films and be successful. Mm. Anyway, this is not about <laughs> Roman Polanski. We are back to another disgusting man. So Alcala's first crime happened in 1968 when he lured 8-year-old Tali Shapiro into his apartment in Hollywood. He raped her and beat her with a steel bar. Um, for this crime, Alcala, much like Roman Polanski, <laughs> escaped by leaving the state and he essentially changed his name and sort of lived under a different alias. So mm-hmm. he enrolled into New York University Film School, you know, the course under Roman Polanski, under the name John Berger. Mm-hmm. Then in 1971, he worked as a counsellor at an arts camp for children in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Once again, he used a different alias, John Berger. Like, <laughs> John Berger was B-E-R-G-E-R, so that's the NYU. Then at the camp, he was John Berger, B-U-R-G-E-R, so not that creative. <laughs> nope. During this time, he murdered 23-year-old Michelle Criley in 1971. Alcala raped and strangled her in his Manhattan apartment, but only would be but would only be linked to her death years later in 2011. Oh wow. Yeah. yeah. By the way, um short, sort of spoiler for later, a lot of his crimes would be linked to him years, years, years later. Hmm. Though at this point he was living under a different alias, his time on the run would be short-lived. So after his attack on eight-year-old Tali Shapiro, he was added to the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives list. So in mm-hmm. 1971, a few kids at his camp uh, recognized his photo on the website and called the authorities. Kids but, actually see the website. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I wonder how that happened though. They were like, Hmm, maybe we'll look at the FBI's most wanted fugitive list today. And then they found this name. <laughs> I don't know. But at the time, um, Tali Shapiro's family had actually moved to Mexico and they, she, they, she, the family essentially refused to testify 
So because of that, um, authorities were unable to convict him for her mm-hmm. rape. So instead, he was convicted of child molestation and was sentenced to three years in prison. But after 17 months, Alcala got out on parole. Two months later, he will be reconvicted for the rape and assault of 13-year-old Julie J. Julie J isn't her actual name. I think um, it was because she was a minor, so she's just called Julie J, who he had offered a right to. Though after serving two years, he was paroled again. And this is where it gets kind of frustrating and this parole officer should have gotten fired. But in 1977, Alcala's parole officer allowed him to travel to New York because he wanted to visit family. And he allowed him to go to New York despite Alcala being a repeat offender as well as a flight risk. So I really don't know why the parole officer decided it was okay to let um, Alcala go to New York. Right. Seven days after arriving in New York, Alcala murdered Elaine Hover, a college student. She had been the daughter of a popular Hollywood nightclub owner. So there's this, I think the nightclub is called Ciro or Cisco. And she was the goddaughter of Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. Mm, interesting. Police found her remains on the grounds of the Rockefeller Estate in Westchester County. In 1978, Alcala worked as a typesetter at the Los Angeles Times. He was also interviewed by members of the Hillside Strangler Task Force because they were looking into known sex offenders as part of the investigation. This was so interesting because I was like, dang, this is like the second case I'm covering where the, 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 the criminal was actually investigated as part of being the Hill... I mean, they were investigated because mm-hmm. the police thought they were the hillside strangler. That's quite... We need to do the hillside strangler. The police eventually found that Alcala had nothing to do with the hillside strangler and so let him go. But he did get arrested for marijuana possession. Which is also wild considering that it is now legal in some states in the U.S., Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, people who are, who are serving time for possession should be released, particularly people of color who were convicted in the past. It's time to get released. Mm-hmm. While he was working at the LA Times, he claimed to be a professional photographer and took photos of hundreds of men and women in compromising positions. Lion Leadham, one of the victims, said he was a professional, so... Um, what did I type here? <laughs> okay, anyway, so I lead him essentially said that he was a professional, so she trusted him and allowed him to take photos of her. And he showed her a portfolio that he had, and she describes it as spread after spread of naked teenage boys, and a lot of these pictures were sex- sexually explicit in nature. Mm. Um, I'll talk more about these photos later on Okay While taking photos He also knocked 15-year-old Monique Hoyt Unconscious while taking photos of her And raped her In 1979 So this was after his appearance in the dating game 
The decomposing body of 12-year-old Robin Samsel was found in the Los Angeles foothills. She had gone missing on her way to ballet class on June 20th, 1979. 12 days later, her body was found on the foothills by a ranger. Robin's friends told investigating officers that a man had actually approached them on the beach and he went up to them and asked them if they would like to have their pictures taken. They declined, after which Robin borrowed a friend's bike and essentially rode off to belly class, but she would never turn up for the class. Mm. A composite sketch was drawn up shortly and was circulated, so the police sent it around to other precincts. And it was then that Alcala's parole officer, the shitty parole officer who let him go to New York, <laughs> so the parole officer saw the picture and he was like, oh shit, I know this guy. <laughs> so officers began to investigate Alcala. So they searched his mother's house in Monterey Park where they found a receipt to a storage locker. In the storage locker, they would find Robin's earrings. So given Alcala's previous criminal records as well as the current case evidence, the police felt that Alcala was their guy and proceeded to arrest him in July 1979 and held him without bail. So I'm going to move on to the trials and let me tell you, the trials are a doozy. So he had three trials in total. So the first trial, the jury found him guilty and sentenced him to death. However... Mm. This was overturned by the California Supreme Court on the grounds that the jurors were prejudiced after learning about his previous sex crimes. Okay. Which so is it like mistrial? Um, I, no, I'm not sure if you would consider it a mistrial. Maybe it was. I'm, I'm not sure about like lawyery, courty terms. I need to <laughs> watch more law dramas for that but um essentially it's because the jury were they were actually informed of his previous convictions so because mm. of that they felt that with the knowledge of his prior convictions they were prejudiced against him and so gave him like a harsher sentence because this was just supposed to be for the murder of robin samso Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah, technically yeah. his previous crimes should not have anything to do with it though mm-hmm. I don't think that makes any sense I feel like you should also take into account the fact that he has repeatedly offended I think they kind of explicitly talk about that case I, I've Maybe. seen yeah I've seen like uh, like when I was watching crime documentaries that was always the case it has to be focused mm-hmm. on that case and nothing from the previous cases has to, can be brought up Okay, I see. So yeah, so that's essentially what happened. And then in 1986, he had his second trial. This time, they omitted his previous sexual assault crimes. So it's Mm -hmm. just solely focused on this one crime. He was sentenced to death once again. But, but, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals nullified the conviction because... Okay, Honda, are you ready for this? Because when I was researching this, I wasn't not ready for this. 
<laughs> they nullified this conviction because the park ranger that found Robin's body had apparently been hypnotized by officers. Mm. Yeah. So I will just read out to you what the LA Weekly wrote about this, okay? In part because the second trial judge did not allow a witness to back up the defense's claim that the park ranger who found Robin Temso's animal ravaged body in the mountains had been had been hypnotized by police investigators. Doesn't make sense. I know. How how are police officers in, how, how are they hypnotizing people? Tell me, because I would like to know. So because of that, essentially um his sentence was nullified. It would take 31 years for Alcala to receive a proper sentencing. So in 2010, 2010, okay, a third trial was conducted. But I'm going to sidetrack a little from this trial and tell you what happened between the second and third because 31 years passed, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let me tell you what happened in those 31 years. In 2003, Alcala's DNA was sampled and his semen matched semen left behind in the rape murders of two women in Los Angeles. He was also linked to another cold case in 2004, which led him to being connected to four other killings. So these are the four other killings. 18-year-old Jill Barco, a runaway from New York who was found rolled up like a ball in an LA ravine in 1977. Mm. She'd originally been believed to be one of the Hillside Strangler's victims. Mm, but... Okay. So they'll find out later on that she wasn't. 27-year-old Georgia Wickstead was found bludgeoned in her Malibu apartment in 1977. 31-year-old Charlotte Lamb, who was raped, strangled, and left in the laundry room of an apartment complex in El Segundo in 1978. Her earrings were also found in Alcala's locker. Mm-hmm. And finally, 21-year-old Jill Parento who was murdered in her apartment in Burbank in 1979. All the women were noted to be posed in carefully chosen positions. During his wait to be sentenced, Alcala self-published a book called You, the Jury, where he essentially said that he did not kill Robin Samso. He also debated against how periodic DNA swaps were done to prisoners. So, uh, prisoners get their DNA taken like periodically in order to like you know in case there's a cold case and you can link them to it <laughs> so um, Alcala was vehemently against that he also filed a lawsuit against the California penal system uh, for two reasons the first was for an incident where he slipped and fell the <laughs> second was because they refused to give him a low fat menu a low fat. Yep. <laughs> okay. 
at his third trial, so we're back to the trial, um, Alcala decided to pull a Ted Bundy and represent himself. <laughs> this time, though, prosecutors were actually able to merge the trials with the newer cases um, together with Robin Samso's one. Mm-hmm. During this trial, Alcala would ask himself questions, aka he would refer to himself as Mr. Alcala. So he did the whole thing where he would play two parts. So in a deep voice, would be like Mr. Alcala, and then in his regular voice, to respond. <sighs> yeah, he this was like I think it was a four or five hour trial. He did it. Oh no! I would lose my shit if I was a jury. I just be like, <laughs> what the hell am I here for? So, um, Alcala would claim that he was at Knott's Berry Farm at the time of Robin's murder. He also claimed that he did not remember killing the other women. And according to Richard Rappaport, which was Alcala's psychiatrist, and when I mean Alcala's psychiatrist, I mean Alcala paid this guy to be his psychiatrist. Um, <laughs> so this psychiatrist basically said that Alcala could have had memory loss because of his borderline personality disorder. Um, Alcala also showed the jurors a part of his episode of the dating game to prove that Robin Samso's earrings actually belonged to him. By the way, if you watch this clip, you will find that he does not have any earrings on. He has pretty long hair when he's on the show, but you can kind of see that he has no earrings on. Mm-hmm. And um, this was also supported by Jed Mills, who was one of the other bachelors on the show with him. And Jed Mills basically explained that at the time when they were filming, so the 1970s, 1978, it was not socially acceptable for men to wear earrings. So if Alcala had worn earrings, he would have noticed. Mm. And Alcala, so Alcala did not have any, he did not wear any earrings at the time. And as part of Alcala's closing statement, he played Alice's Restaurant, a song by Arlo Guthrie. And this part is from Wikipedia because I don't know anything about the song, but Wikipedia says the protagonist tells a psychiatrist that he wants to kill. And this is part of the song, apparently. So this is a great closing statement for Alcala. But perhaps the biggest plot twist of this third trial was the fact that Tali Shapiro, the eight-year-old girl that he sexually assaulted, one of his, Mm -hmm. I mean, his alleged, like, first ever crime, Mm. um, she appeared. So after nearly 40 years, she came to this trial in order to see justice for the... Uh, for Alcala's other victims. After less than two days of deliberating, the jury convicted him on all five counts of first-degree murder and he was sentenced to death. Mm. So, remember the photos he took um, when he was working for the LA Times? Mm-hmm. So, in March 2010, 120 pictures that were taken by him were actually released to the public. And this was in hopes to identify potential victims. So mm-hmm. 120 pictures were released, but there were over 900 pictures that could not be released because of how sexually explicit they were. Okay. In the first few weeks after releasing the images, about 21 women came forward to identify themselves 
and at least six families believed they recognized loved ones that had gone missing. Mm. Alcala himself alleged that he killed between 50 and 100 people. And here are some of the crimes he was a person of interest of or eventually convicted. So in 2010, he was the person of interest in the murder of 13-year-old Antoinette Whitaker, who was murdered in July 1977, and 17-year-old Joyce Gaunt, who was murdered in February 1978. Both of them, their jewellery was found in his locker. Okay. In 2011, investigators... <laughs> in 2011... Investigators in Marine County alleged that Alcala was involved in the murder of 19-year-old Pamela Jean Lamson, who went missing after a trip to Fisherman's Wharf to meet a man who wanted to take photos of her. Uh, her naked and beaten body was later found near a hiking trail in Marine County. There had been no fingerprints or DNA that could find her killer. But now they had sufficient evidence to connect her death to Alcala. In September 2016, Alcala was charged with the murder of 28-year-old Ruth Christine Ruth Thornton. Um, she disappeared in 1977 and was six months pregnant at the time. Her body had been found in Sweetwater County, Wyoming in 1982. In 2013, one of her relatives recognized her in one of the photos Alcala had taken, and it was only in 2015, with DNA supplied by them, that she could be identified. Alcala admitted to taking photos of her, but not to killing her. Mm -hmm. And at the time of this development, so in 2016, Alcala was 73 and was too old to go to Wyoming to stand trial. So. He was also, sorry, not too old. He was too sick. Apparently, he was too okay. sick to go stand trial. Was like, too old. Yeah, I was like, Sergei is not that old. Mm. Okay, here's the interesting bit and one of the reasons as to why I picked the story for today. On July 24th, 2021. Last July week, 4th? 24th. Or 24th. Wow. Last week. Alcala passed away from natural causes at a hospital in San Joaquin Valley, California. He was 77 years old. <sighs> so Alcala was back in the headlines because he recently passed away. Dun -dun. Actually, I might have seen a post about a killer who died in the hospital. Yeah, every <laughs> crime site I follow... And Reddit, they were all talking about this. Yeah, I think I came across. Okay, so let's go back to the beginning of the story where Cheryl Bradshaw um, essentially picked him to go on a date with, right? Mm -hmm. Well, she never went on the date with Alcala because she later found him very creepy. <laughs> and honestly, good for her. Yeah. <laughs> she tested the guts. <laughs> yeah, she dodged the bullet with this one. Today, investigators believe that Rodney Alcala, aka the dating game killer, could have killed about 130 people. Uh, and this is the story of Rodney Alcala, aka the dating game killer. <laughs> My throat is so dry after the story. Interesting. 
Mm-hmm. <sighs> so you never really know like the total body count in the end. Yeah, it's kind of hard to say the total body count. Also because um, like it's kind of hard to identify. I think it was hard to identify the bodies at the time because of the lack of DNA evidence. On top of yeah. that, even now they were only banking on the fact that she, he had all these photos in order to like mm-hmm. cope. Yeah. So no one can really know either. And the US is huge. <laughs> also because he's dead. Like he just died. <laughs> he's dead. And he he kept saying that he couldn't remember killing these women so you know there's that and on top of that at the time I think the Hillside Strangler was active as well as Son of Sam I think Son of Sam was also active at the time uh, I think yeah. there was a docu crime docu about Son of Sam, Son of Sam yeah. but um, yeah so it's one of those things where you cannot be 100% certain that he was also the one who killed women who disappeared at the time. Because, you know, there was a Hillside Strangler as well. Apparently, Hillside yeah, Strangler is plural, not singular. It's, it, it was more than one. Hmm. Stranglers. Interesting. <laughs> one day, one of us will cover it. <laughs> well, Honda. Do you have a spooky story for us today? Uh-huh. I'm going to make you scared of your own reflection. I'm scared. I don't like this. <laughs> Why are you always scared? It's... I don't like it. I, I, suddenly, say... <laughs> I suddenly don't want to be afraid of my own reflection. So Okay, I brace myself. I brace myself. Okay. okay. So, this... Incident. Incident, okay. Not say incident, but this peculiar. Okay, before thing. you start, I'm so sorry, Honda, but if you turn around, your window. It looks like your, a reflection, your, right? Your, yeah, can you please cover it? I'm kind of freaked out. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, it does look like a face. Can you just cover it, please? <laughs> Are you stopping? I don't want to see it. Okay, okay, okay. okay. <laughs> what the shit? Yeah, halfway I was like looking at it. I was just like, you know, it would be so creepy if there's a face there. But I live on Can the you stop? Floor. You know that's my number one fear. You know I'm afraid of windows because I'm afraid a face is going to appear there. Stop. Why would you do this to me? Honda keeps pulling. Can you? Okay. Honda keeps pulling back the curtain so I can see her window and I really hate windows at night. Okay. All right. Okay. Carry on. Tell me about this incident. Because they say you'll be afraid of your own reflection. <laughs> you get yes. so paranoid. I'm sorry, like mirror ghosts. I've I've seen one too many stories of like mirror ghosts. So we pre- appreciate not encountering one ever. Thank you. Mm. So this peculiar event happened during the 19th century in France. Oh. Maybe. Oh my god, no. Yeah, so the story was told from a girl called Julie von Goldenstub, who had attended an elite boarding school called 
Pensionet von Newark. I'm pretty sure that's not how you pronounce it. Nope. <laughs> nope. <laughs> we don't know French. <laughs> so please have mercy on us. So this is where Julie met Emily, who had joined the school as a teacher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the teacher Emily was 32 years old at that time, and she was popular among the students and colleagues, and she had a bright and engaging personality. Mm-hmm. However, there's one particular, like, not particular, peculiar fact about her. Okay. So this teaching post in the school is her would be her 19th job and her 16th year as a teacher. So okay. she was employed in 18 different schools in 16 years. That's a bit sus, right? Yeah, a bit odd, right? <laughs> it's not a bit, it's kind of odd. Mm, and okay. I guess in 18th century, there's like, I don't know, there's like no digital records for like <laughs> the schools to like keep record, like a database where like, you know, you can find why or like I mean, to confirm how, a, why it's and how. Of like the Rodney Alcala thing, like the reason why he could get on the show and stuff was because they didn't do, they couldn't. I think I don't think they had the capabilities, or they just didn't do like a proper like background check mm-hmm. kind of thing on him. So I think there's a similar situation here. Like you mm. can't really find out much about the person, especially in the 1800s, unless it's through word of mouth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the student and staff at that school will soon find out. I just want you to know that I hate this already. So one day, when she had been teaching her class of 17 girls as usual, she had been writing on the board with her back facing the girls. Okay. And then, out of nowhere, a projection-like entity that looked just like her had appeared. Okay. So, she had a doppelganger. Honda, were you inspired by Pikachu and me for this? Yes. Oh my god, okay. There's something yeah. about doppelgangers that kind of freaked me out. Because you know the... What's the thing they say about doppelgangers? If you see your doppelganger first, you will die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I hope I don't ever see my doppelganger also. I'm so sorry to my doppelganger that you look like me. Please. <laughs> I'd be so scared to see two Chris's. <laughs> I think you'd be annoyed. <laughs> Run away. <laughs> yeah. So the, this entity stood right beside Emily and mocked her by imitating her movements. Mm. But Emily oh. couldn't see this entity. Mm, no. All the students could see it, but she couldn't. Oh god, okay. Yeah, so she had never seen her doppelganger before. Which I guess is good for her because, you know, it's considered to be like bad omen to see one's own doppelganger. Like what mm, you said, mm-mm. you might die. Mm. So I guess lucky for her, she was <laughs> she didn't get to see her doppelganger. 
So after this incident, students and staff would spot this entity frequently around the school. Mm. Yeah, so she would be seen beside Emily while Emily was doing her work. And one creepy incident was when Emily had been helping her student dress up for an event. And as the student was being helped, you know, she happened to look down at her dress only to find two Emily's fixing her dress. And upon seeing this, the student fainted. I mean, I would too. What the shit? Okay. Yeah, so the most talked about sighting of of Emily and the doppelgangers was when she was seen gardening by a class full of 42 girls Mm -hmm. who were were sewing. Mm -hmm. And... So when the supervisor of that class walked out for a while, Emily walked in and sat down at her place. Okay. Yeah, so, you know, the students didn't think much of it because it's just Emily, the te- the, another teacher who walked mm-hmm. in. Until one of the students pointed out that Emily was still in the garden doing her work. Okay. I hate this. Okay. <laughs> Oh god, tell me you didn't hate this when you're researching it. I thought it was quite like fun. <laughs> okay, this is why. This is why I was just thinking about us, like the movie us the whole time. Okay, well, yeah, that is kind of easing my nerves a bit. How does the movie us ease your nerves? Because us is a fictional story, oh, you know? It, it's not real. It never happened. It's just a film. Mm. This story, on the other hand, I know is an account of something that actually happened, right? But, you know, I'll just take comfort in the fact that Us is a fictional story and this is somehow, like, this is a kind of similar story. So I'm, like, tricking my brain into thinking, like, this is fictional and never happened. Okay. Imagine a murderous Chris living underground in Singapore. <laughs> oh, God. Ugh. Yeah. So there were students who had been brave enough to go up to the doppelganger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they went up to it and tried to touch the entity. Wait, this entire time, no one was telling Emily that there was, like, a strange doppelganger following her around? I mean, eventually, you know, they will say. Okay. Because it's creeping everyone out. (laughs) Yeah, so when they try and touch the doppelganger, they only find that their hands would go through her. Mm. Like, nothing was there. But the entity is there. Okay, so she doesn't have a physical form. Mm. Okay. But would you be brave enough to go up to the top of the and try and touch it? Honda, I'm not even <laughs> brave to be in the same room with that thing. I'll be out. Yeah, so when Emily was asked about this, she was at a loss. You know, she had never seen this doppelganger of hers was ruining her life and she had no control over it. Mm. Yeah, and because of this thing, she had been, you know, asked to leave all her previous jobs. Oh, shit. Okay. So that yeah. explains the 19 schools in 16 years. Okay. 
Yeah, so even at this school, the parents of the students, you know, started taking their children out of the institution. Mm. And eventually the principal had to let Emily go, you know, even if Emily, you know, was good at her work and, you know, was a good teacher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so interestingly, while Emily's doppelganger made itself visible, you know, while the doppelganger was visible, Emily appeared very worn out and lethargic. You know, as if... It was as, feeding off her energy kind of thing? As if, like, her spirit is, like, wandering out, so she's tired, you know? Oh, oh shit. I thought it was another entity that was just, like, leeching off her energy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, yeah, that's why when it disappeared, she was back to her normal self. Oh. Okay. Mm. Yeah, so after the incident at the garden, um, Emily had said that she had an urge to go inside the classroom to supervise the kids herself. But, you know, she couldn't because she was doing gardening work. So, yeah, so the doppelganger could be some sort of projection of what Emily wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so some theorize that this doppelganger comes out to do the task that Emily herself was doing in an alternate universe Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. when she had made a different choice from that world. Yeah. So what would you do if people around you are seeing another version of you like right beside you? Dude, I get exorcism (laughs) straight up. Dispel the spirit, please. Yeah. So this is the story of Emily Segi. I don't know how to pronounce the last name. So, yeah. Shit. Was it yeah. like ever a resolution? Like, no. The spirit just followed her around. Jesus Christ. I mean, because the story so long ago, and the story was from a student of hers. Oh, so shit. when she left the school, I guess, you know, we will never know how many more jobs she had to lose. Yeah, dang. I don't know. Wow. Yeah, this story was at the back of my mind until. I watched the Dreamcatcher music video. And then I was like, ah, right. Oh my god, that's creepy. That's legit creepy. Dang, holy shit. Oh, imagine if you had a twin, like an identical twin. I mean, I don't mind twin, but it's the fact that this is like some sort of weird spiritual entity that is causing her like. I mean, it does not, not sound physical malicious. harm, but yeah. Yeah, it wasn't like physically harming or anything, but it was causing her like monetary loss, like financial harm. <laughs> she has to keep changing jobs. She'll never know job stability. Yeah, she'll never know job stability. Jeez, it's like she's living in 2021. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but wow. Thanks for that story, Honda. Stop! Can you please stop showing no, the video? No, I'm trying to see how. I mean, it doesn't look like a face, but I just don't like windows and night. No, no, no. Can you see it? Like, this light part? I don't want it. I don't want to see it. I'm not seeing it. This I light part is like the mouth, nose area, and then I'm the darker parts away. are the eyes. I'm looking So, away. And then this rectangular part is the forehead. Can you see it now? Looking away. <laughs> I refuse to see it. I refuse to Okay, I moved the camera. It's not real. <laughs> Looks like a man's face just peering in. 
I hate it. I hate it. Like, it's like my number one fear. Like, a random face appearing at my window. And then sometimes when the wind blows, like, it feels like, it, it, it sounds like someone's tapping the window. Please, no. <laughs> Please. I already hear, like, my upstairs neighbors doing weird shit at, like, the middle of the night. How do you know there are people there? Shut up. There are people there. <laughs> there are definitely people there. Are you sure? <laughs> Jesus. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review, and click that follow button on Spotify. You can also listen to us on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Amazon, and whatever podcast platform you listen to. And you can follow us on Instagram at HGU Podcast. Share us a message or send us a story if you'd like. You can also email us at hiddenamongustree at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye-bye. Next week is our special National Day episode. <laughs> so stay tuned. It's going to be fun. Bye. Bye. Bye.